Our text this morning as we hear from the living God and His Word is the fifth chapter of Galatians, verses 1 to 6. And it is, by many accounts, maybe most accounts, the main turning point in Galatians. There's one commentator who says this is the high watermark of the epistle. Because here, Paul turns finally and fully from argument to exhortation. Or you could say, Paul moves from the explanation of the gospel that has occupied him at least for two chapters to the application of the gospel. Perhaps if you've been with us, this is the moment you've been waiting for all these weeks. The pivot is in verse 1. Listen to Paul, the apostle writing also to you. Christians, Galatian Christians in the first century, Torontonian Christians in the 21st century, it's the same. It's the same gospel. It's the gospel in a nutshell. Paul says very simply, verse 1a, for freedom, Christ has set us free. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Set you free, Galatians, and set you free, brothers and sisters. To understand that sentence, just that simple sentence, is to have life. It is both to live the life God intends, and it is to be assured of eternal life. It is a sentence that perfectly captures the pivot. Just make this simple observation, if you haven't already, that there are two parts to that statement. There's a freedom from something, and there's a freedom to something. Do you see that? The freedom from something is in the second part of the sentence. Christ has set us free, Paul says. And if you've been here for even part of Galatians so far, you know what it is that we're set free from, right? We're set free from the curse of the law, from slavery to sin, from hardness of heart, from bondage to the elementary principles of the world. All of these things, Paul says, in the context of Galatians 3 and 4, all of these things which otherwise would dictate our lives, you would have no freedom were you not set free. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Paul would later write to the Ephesians in chapter 2 of that letter, you were dead. Following the course of this world, 
following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But, oh, Christians in Galatia, on the verge of slavery again, and Christians in Toronto, Christ has set us free. Free from sin. Free from ourselves. And how did he do it? Well, it's not stated in this verse, but he did it by the cross. It's the cross. It's Romans 4, verse 25. He was delivered over to death, Paul writes, for our sins. And so, I have been crucified with Christ, Paul says to the Galatians in chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified. I, I in all my sinfulness and bondage to the elementary principles of the world, to sin, to living in the passions of my flesh, by nature a child of wrath, I've been crucified with Christ. I've been set free. It's by the cross of Christ. And we must embrace it. But then having done so, we're not just set free from something. We're set free to something. Do you see, the, the, do you see Paul's language there in verse 1 of chapter 5? Christ has set us free, yes, but why? For what purpose? You find it there in the first two words of the ESV translation. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Do you see that? You've been set free for freedom. In other words, you've been set free to live freely, Christian. To really live, to live with the right purpose, to live with the freedom to do the will of God, to live freely. It has to mean the opposite of all that we just saw a minute ago when I read from Ephesians, the beginning of Ephesians 2. Yes, where the Bible says it. No longer now do we live in the passions of our flesh. No longer do we live carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. No longer do we live by nature children of wrath. No longer. Ephesians 2 goes on to verse 10. Now we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's a freedom to live for God. That's what Paul says to the Galatians. You have, don't you see? Don't, don't you see? You have what God's people in the nation of Israel haven't had. You have it. How does that happen? Well, there you're back to the beginning of chapter 3 in Galatians, aren't you? It's by the Spirit. 
How is it that we now live new lives, walking in the ways of God, living freely? It was the cross by which you were set free. So you know how it is we then live freely? You do know if you've been here recently. It's the Spirit. It's the cross plus the Spirit. See, Kira, nothing's changed from four months. You, might as, you didn't even have to be here for three months. You already knew it was coming. It's the cross plus the Spirit. Or, as Paul would put it in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 17, catch this, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 17, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, you know the verse, there is freedom. Freedom. Freedom in the Spirit. For freedom, Paul begins in chapter 5, of course he does, for freedom, life by the Spirit. We're going to see what life by the Spirit looks like. For freedom, Christ has set us free by dying on the cross for our sins. It's the gospel. It's what Paul so passionately wants his Galatian readers to understand. And it's what you and I need to grasp to truly live. To truly live. You could say, though it's a bit simplistic and not quite true, but you could say that Galatians chapters 1 to 4, and especially 3 and 4, are basically about how Christ has set us free. And Galatians 5 and 6 are about how he set us free for freedom as we live by the Spirit. There's going to be lots in chapters 5 and 6 that will unpack what that freedom looks like, it's a concept that's not going anywhere for a while, but already just in the first six verses we find in our passage this morning what Paul's talking about in freedom. It's explicitly there in verse 6. Look there now, just to verse 6 of chapter 5, and then we'll come back to it as we walk through the text. But verse 6, for in Christ Jesus, Paul says, that is to say, I think by means of what God has done, what God has accomplished through the coming of the Messiah, the Christ, that is, by the cross on which he died and by the Spirit whom he's poured out, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only, only faith working through love. Faith working through love. That's the Christian life. That's the Christian life. That's the life of faith. Paul will have a lot to say about it moving ahead and, and we'll unpack it in weeks to come. But just glance ahead quickly. Verse 13, chapter 5. Look at verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
And now look at verse 16. But I say, Paul says, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Drop down to verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is, first one listed, love. Against such things there is no law, Paul says. No curse of the law will come to you, Galatians. So this teaching is going to be with us now for a while as we, we try to unpack this in the, in the weeks to come. We move into this part of Galatians. We'll have much more to say. I want, though, to look now briefly with you at the, the flow of these verses 1 to 6 here in chapter 5. It's all we're getting to today to see how they work, if only briefly. I've already said here, verse 1 is the pivot. For freedom, Christ has set us free. You live by the Spirit. Stand firm, therefore. And do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now, this is the Galatians he's writing to specifically in this context. Stand firm. What are the Galatians to do? Or not to do? According to verses 2 to 4. Well, you know, if you've been here for the context of this letter, they are not to accept circumcision. Which these agitators from Jerusalem are urging them to do to inherit the blessings of God. Paul says, no. Why not? Because, he says, to do so would be to go back to slavery, verse 1 says. We'll unpack that. And then verse 2, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. I think this means, Galatians, you embrace circumcision, then you've got to go all the way. You have to become Jews. You have to tie yourself to the old covenant era. You have to live in accordance with the stipulations of the Old Covenant era. And you've been here for the last two chapters of Galatians. You know what that means. That means slavery. That means the curse of the law. That means the curse of those who did not keep what the Torah prescribed because their hearts were hard. That's precisely what Paul's been arguing. The Galatians are not. Right? Isn't this what Galatians is saying? You have the Spirit, Galatians. Remember where he was at in chapter 3? Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? You have the Spirit. You have the hearing of faith. You have the law written on your heart. You have the very thing the people of the Old Covenant on the whole didn't have and still don't have, as we saw last week, if you were here. And you want to be like them? Don't you see, Galatians, to do that, to go back, would be to forsake the blessings of the new covenant, to live as if Christ had never been slain, as if freedom hadn't actually arrived, as if the coming faith 
had never been revealed. Do you remember the end of chapter 3 in Galatians, uh, verse 23 of chapter 3? Paul writes, now before faith came, we, we Jews, that you Galatians have to become, you're going to accept circumcision, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Verse 25, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Galatians, why would you want to go back? I am perplexed about you, Paul would say. How can you want to return to imprisonment? This is not who you are. Stand firm, therefore, he says, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery for freedom Christ has set us free. You see, the Galatians thought, because they were being taught by those coming from Jerusalem, that the full blessings of God would come only in accordance with the stipulations of the Old Covenant. Paul says it's just the opposite. O foolish Galatians, don't you see? Verse 4, look at verse 4. You are severed from Christ. You who would be or would attempt to be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Which takes us back, not surprisingly being a transitional point in the book, takes us back this mention of grace all the way to chapter 1. All the way to chapter 1 where Paul started in verse 3. Grace to you, Galatians. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember this? It's the same point Paul's making now in chapter 5. Jesus who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Deliverance doesn't come from the works of the law. Deliverance comes from life in the Spirit through the cross of Christ. And then chapter 1, verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. And then go ahead to chapter 2, verse 21, if you want, and just look there. I do not nullify the grace of God, Paul says. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. What's the point? Righteousness isn't through the law. So it's not new exactly, but it is shockingly clear when Paul says to them, you go this way? You aim to be justified by the law where righteousness cannot come. That's your target? You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. The very grace that he's articulated comes both from God the Father and through the Lord Jesus Christ for them. For freedom, Christ has set us free. And you know what that means ultimately if they go that route? They follow these agitators ultimately? 
means they won't be saved. It means they won't be saved. It means they won't, in fact, be delivered from the present evil age by the grace of God that Paul began with in chapter 1, verse 3. Because on the final day, the day of deliverance, the day of judgment, the day of salvation, Paul says, essentially, you won't make it. You won't make it. Right? Now, to see that, we have to see here the argument of verses 4 to 6. I mean, Paul, in verses 2 to 4, builds up to verse 4, which is obviously the, the dire warning. This is deadly, serious stuff. But if we could trace the argument here, we find the gospel, because Paul hasn't given up on them yet. They haven't been circumcised yet. He's warning them. So watch carefully and hang in there with me. Verse 4 says, you accept circumcision. You put yourself back in the way of the old covenant. It means you've fallen away from grace. And so you're severed from Christ. The grace that's found in the new covenant, the grace of Christ is not yours. That's verse 4. And now look at the first words of verse 5 and verse 6. Both those verses begin with the word for, F-O-R. Which means, if you're thinking about it, that verse 5 explains why verse 4 is true. And then verse 6 explains why verse 5 is true, right? So it's 4, 5 explains 4, 6 explains 5. That means that the main point for the Galatians is verse 4. That's the warning. Paul then backs that up with two further statements. So we're going to start at the end in verse 6 and work back to verse 4 so that we can explain this point once more that Paul so urgently makes. Because the Galatians have it wrong or they're about to get it wrong. It's not circumcision that ultimately matters. You say, well, no, of course it isn't. Well, wait a minute. It's not just living according to the stipulations of the law that ultimately matters. Hear that again. It's not just living according to the stipulations of the law that ultimately matter. There is ultimately only one thing that matters. There only ever has been one thing that matters, and it's in verse 6. And we read it before. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. In verse 4, Paul's told the Galatians, if you accept circumcision, it will mean you've fallen away from grace. You submit to the teaching of these agitators from Jerusalem. And according to verse 6, why is that so? It's a bit surprising, actually, when you see it. It's because ultimately, circumcision doesn't matter, Paul says. It doesn't matter. Can you imagine the response to that from the agitators who came from Jerusalem? Paul, have you ever even read the Old Covenant? It was required. To which Paul, I think, would say, yes, the law required it. But don't you realize that from the very beginning, it was only meant to be a sign, 
of the covenant. Or to generalize the concept here, as I think you can do, biblically speaking, don't you see that there was always meant to be an underlying reality that the stipulations of the law pointed to? Do you remember when we looked at the life of Abraham and we came to the commandment of circumcision in Genesis 17 and we saw in verse 11 of Genesis 17 that it was called explicitly a sign of the covenant between you and me. This will be a sign of the covenant between you and me, right? A sign. But what was the whole point of looking at Abraham? What was it that showed that Abraham was a member of the covenant with God? Well, Paul's whole point was that it was his faith. Abraham had the hearing of faith. This is the point. Circumcision was designed as all the law was. The circumcision was designed to be a sign of faith. It's only ever been faith that makes one a covenant keeper. We considered that last week as well. We don't have a lot of time, but it's not just Abraham. It's not just Paul saying this. I mean, Paul isn't going back to Abraham to uncover something that the rest of the Old Testament ignores. Listen to just two texts. Here's Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12. Moses speaking. And now Israel. Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you, he says, but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. Sound familiar? <laughs> we say it at the beginning of every Sunday service. In other words, Moses is saying, what does the Lord require of you except faith? Faith. How do they have faith? It's there in Deuteronomy 10. Here's verse 16 of Deuteronomy 10. This is what the Lord requires. How does it happen? Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, he says. And be no longer stubborn. There it is. It's your heart, Israel. Circumcise your heart. Consider now also Jeremiah 4. Just one other example. Jeremiah 4. Very different time, very different context, same reality. If you return, O Israel, declares the Lord, to me you should return. Remove your detestable things from my presence and do not waver. In other words, get rid of your idols and follow me. Live by faith. But how is that to be done? Here's verse 3 of Jeremiah 4. Break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. You see it? The stipulations of the law, explicitly here, circumcision, the stipulations of the law were always meant to point to an underlying reality an underlying reality of faith, of transformed hearts, you see? So if your heart was changed, then you lived according to the law. And if your heart wasn't changed, then the law condemned you. 
The problem was that we've seen a few times now that the hearts of most of the Israelites weren't changed because the Lord didn't change them. That has to be it. Because how, otherwise, how do you explain a text like Paul in Romans 2? Listen to Romans 2, verses 28 and 29. It's in a context of a larger paragraph, but just verses 28 and 29 of Romans 2. I mean, this is how you put the Bible together, folks. Paul says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. <laughs> Think about that. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. Right? Paul's not making this up. He's remembering texts like the ones we just read. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, Paul says. Isn't that amazing? Circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter, that is, not by the law on its own. Joan, who was in the first service, wrote me this week and said, I think I understand. The law couldn't prevent sin. Bingo. The law couldn't prevent sin. The letter comes and it kills you, unless your heart's changed. This is verse 5 of our text. Do you see it? For you Galatians, you turn to the law for your justification as if the works of the law were ever the way to be justified. You've fallen from grace. Why? Here it is, verse 5. For through the Spirit by faith we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Through the Spirit by faith, friends. So said as simply as I can, what Paul means is this. You and I, we live. How do we live? We live in hope. We live in confident expectation. That's the biblical definition of hope. It's not like I hope it doesn't rain today, but it might. The hope of the Bible is a secure reality, a confident expectation, Paul says. We have that. That on the last day of judgment, we will be found righteous. The hope of righteousness. We're going to be justified. We're going to be found right in the sight of God. Why? Why are we so confident of that? Galatians, not because you get circumcised. It's because you live by faith. It's because we live by faith, which means you've been forgiven by the cross and empowered by the Spirit, and we're living through the Spirit by faith, literally from faith. It's another reference to Habakkuk 2, verse 4. Just a footnote for the interested. It's faith. So we need to put this together now. You've fallen away from grace, Paul says in verse 4. You do this. For, he says in verse 5, it's not through doing that. It's through the Spirit by faith that we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness, not by works of the law. For, why is that true? Why is that true? Because in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. You see why you can say that now? 
but only faith working through love. It's the same thing as Romans chapter 3, verse 30, where Paul writes, God who is one, one people, one covenant, one God, God who is one will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. It's always faith. It's always been faith. You have to live by faith. You have to be like Abraham and all the seed of the promised line through the history of Israel, where in spite of the reality that most of the people were hard-hearted and unable to follow the Lord, there was a remnant of those who exercised faith by the power of the Spirit. The promise of Abraham is the Spirit. This is the whole argument of Galatians. You have to live by faith, brothers and sisters, which means you have to live by the Spirit. Which you only have because of Jesus dying on the cross for your sins and sending you that same Spirit. It's all in Christ Jesus that this happens. It's grace, in other words. So that what, in the end, is the only thing that counts for anything? Only thing that counts for anything. You ought to filter your everyday life through this. Everything you're thinking, saying, doing, living, eating, breathing, interacting, what's the only thing that's going to matter? We'll expand on this in coming weeks, but there's only one thing that counts, and it's faith working through love in your life. Faith working through love. You have to take the whole phrase seriously because Paul means to say that if you don't have love, and we'll talk about what that is, if you don't have love, then you don't have faith. This is faith expressing itself in love. You can have no confidence to stand before the Lord on the day of judgment expecting to be counted righteous without this faith working through love. Why not? Well, because as Paul would, will put it in verse 14 of chapter 5, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Brothers and sisters, hear me. On the day, there's only one thing that will matter. And it's faith. But note well, the kind of faith that makes a difference on the day of judgment, the kind of faith that justifies, isn't what James chapter 2 calls what the demons possess. The mere mental assent to the facts of the Christian faith, even the demons believe, James says, and shudder. No, it's the kind of faith that so trusts in Jesus that it inevitably expresses itself in love for both God and others. It's the kind of faith that works through love. It's the kind of faith, in other words, that looks like Jesus. 
The same Jesus whose spirit now fills us, bearing fruit in our lives, in whose will and power we must walk, learning day by day to put on Christ as we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For freedom, Christ has set us free. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.